everybody. Happy autumn 2020. Fall time is here. The season of maturity and abundance has arrived. I hope everyone is ready because the falling of the leaves is in full swing. Here in the Northern Hemisphere, that is. So welcome to Fringe with Benefits. I'm your badass host, Stacy. It's episode 10. Double digits, bleaches. I come to you to scramble your brain on all things anomalous, peculiar, weird, and abnormal. This is the safe space to talk about conspiracies, the supernatural, the potential of zombie apocalypse, the threat of biological and chemical warfare, and even your feelings, which are completely valid, by the way. This week's episode is late, so I had a side project to smash, and I hope it was a good decision and a good choice. And now I can move on. Um, there's a couple of professional detours I've been taking in what I like to call a way of hacking the matrix, if I do say so myself. But I don't know if that's going to work out, and I'm really, really trying really hard and working really hard towards that. So we'll see. I definitely couldn't stop thinking of my cute little podcast, how it's been so entertaining and it's highly enjoyable and I highly recommend a personal and creative outlet for anyone who's looking for some fun because this is a lot of fun but I'm I'm one of those people that likes to talk so I don't know about you you may not anyhow it's been a long week and I'm glad it's over so let's get on with it shall we I don't really have an inventory for the accountability rap sheet this week not for the podcast anyhow I'm late recording like I said but um I highly doubt anyone lost any sleep over missing my episode this week. Have you? Did you? Maybe. I was actually going to skip this week's episode, but I couldn't help myself. Shit is too crazy not to stop and talk about it. So real quick, let's go over how you can find me. Visit InwardSurvival.com for ways to donate the blog and link to all my social medias through there. Fringe with Benefits has a Twitter and Facebook page now, so go give them some love and say hi while you're at it. And the show's Anchor homepage has a support the show option. It's 50% of all podcasting proceeds goes to Inward Survival, a 501c3 not-for-profit geared to bring humanity back to its roots, a foundation of strength, resilience, and integrity. Share the show. Even if it's only a word of mouth, tell others who might be interested in the fringe stuff or the weird woo-woo stuff. Here we are, you know, skeptics of the skeptical, the critics of the mainstream, the free thinkers with an expanded worldview uniting to try to figure shit out or to die trying. Oh yeah, so check out the YouTube, Golden Valkyrification, leave me a five-star if you're listening on Apple, and this week was full of ridiculousness. We're going to just have to dive right into this. All right, so this week on Stacy's Socials, we have a little something-something for you. I actually had to do some homework on this one. Netflix has been in some trouble lately. I'm sure everybody's been seeing all that stuff on social media about Netflix. We're not going to get into that much, but there is a connection to Sundance Film Festival as well um, with what I'm about to talk about. And if you guys have been following any of that, then you will know that Sundance is, um, it's, um, it's related, right? So just keep that in the back of your mind. So I see a ton of posts about this Netflix documentary called 
The Social Dilemma. A friend even PM'd me to ask if I had seen it, and I hadn't. So, like, you know, there's all this hype about it, so I'm going to give it a go. I'm going to check it out, right? Figured I would and sat down with my dude and we gave it a go. So, spoiler alert, if you may not want to listen to this if you haven't seen it. So, either turn it off now or keep listening and then it's up to you. Here it goes. So, it comes off... The Social Dilemma on Netflix comes off as this documentary, like an investigative documentary. But it's more like, you know, it's a a docudrama for sure, because there is some produced stuff in this that, I mean, of course, all documentaries are produced, but there is actual acting and actors playing a part that kind of goes with the storyline. It talks about this, um, how the human attention is being a commodity and or how human attention is a commodity online and we're being exploited by um, surveillance capitalism I think is what they called it so it's produced the storyline of a kid and how devices affect him and his family and there's this really important message about addiction and time-wasting and how there's an entire billion dollar business that are like they're competing for your attention and your money right so i'm sure everybody knows that all the advertising that's geared to us online so it's all this shocking and repulsive stuff that we know but we don't really want to talk about so like who's telling people you spent five hours looking at your phone or tv or both like we people don't really talk about how much time they spend on their device In fact, when I personally get that weekly summary of how many hours I've spent during the week, I don't really like to look at it or, you know, my daily summaries. I don't, I don't want to see how much time I spend on there because when I do, I'm like, well, shit, I need to put it down and spend it doing something else because you could really get sucked into social media. You could spend so much time doing that. So people are not talking about how much they're using their devices. So huge epiphany, right? Nope, not yet. Okay. It tries to disclose these truths and these dangers of your device and the impact it has on your kids, right? And it lists what people should be thinking about, you know, addiction, lack of privacy, lack of connection, lack of self-control, misinformation, propaganda, and influence, and all of those things. But where it lost me were the examples they used when exploring the conspiracy subject. Comparing pretty much any old school legends of shadow government, the smoking man, to flat earth. Nothing against the flat earthers, but no, you know. The kicker was using an Italian pie turnstile. If you guys know what that means, that's code. Italian pie turnstile as a debunked example in which has it has not been debunked. That blatantly just, like, lost me. Then I started to think that maybe there was some kind of ulterior motive with this movie. Netflix or Sundance or the creators of The Social Dilemma. Was this film a vehicle to push a narrative yet under the guise of whistleblowing investigative journalism? Maybe, maybe not. Discrediting or trying to discredit conspiracy theories that the public deserve a deep dive into is is horrible, right? So what are their intentions from this film? I noticed a lot of people were really like appalled and influenced by this, but I want to know what was the true message. 
So it's not like they didn't tell us something we didn't know for at least like seven years, except now people are worried about what content our neighbors are exposed to. And what about the addiction? The difficulty of putting it down? What about the loss of privacy? The desperation to look appealing, successful, happy, or at least conscientiously wishing we were in someone else's shoes with someone else's bank account? What about the influence of emotionally charged clickbait when engineered to piss you off, designed to get you to react? What are we to do about it? Best is to unplug occasionally and spend time without the devices. Do we worry about what others are seeing and believing? Well, yes and no. My observation of this docu feature is that it was meant to inform, persuade, generate an emotional response. Was it fear? Was it contempt? Was it concern? Guaranteed your device knows how you feel about it. So that's what I got for you this week in social of st- uh, Stacy's <laughs> socials. So I watched that film and that is that's basically what I thought. I mean, it was pushed on me by social media, by my friends and my family to watch, watch, watch. So I watched it and it wanted me to believe something. It was telling me that this is how this is and that I need to, one, know this, two, be aware of it, three, be afraid of it, and four, there didn't really offer much of a solution in the way of it. I mean, they, it was a a very theatrical ending for the end of this thing. I'm not going to tell you, you know, what it was, but it was, it offered no real solutions to the problem. It basically presented the problem, tried to educate me on something I already knew about, and then tried to warn me about uh, possible, you know, influences on my friends and family through social media. So what does that say? I don't know. Let me know. So we're going to move into viral corner after a quick word from our sponsor. Sorry the energy was so low on that last segment. A quick little podcasting tip for the pros. (laughs) I record these segments, you know, throughout the course of a couple of days, and it's around my busy-ass schedule, and I've got a kid in the background homeschooling because we're doing this virtual totally school. Um, So you get it done when you get it done, pretty much. So sorry my my energy was way low at the beginning of Stacy Socials yesterday because, whew, it's pretty sad. <laughs> if you made it through that, then I'm proud of you. So this week's viral corner video is it's it's all about the hot mask debate issue. So it's it's a messed up video. I really don't even advise even watching it because it's not funny at all. And we aren't even totally clear on the backstory. We can speculate though. So it takes place at this high school bo- football field. Security guards coming up to this woman. She has no mask on. And there's a kid and another woman and a, a young man who seems to be trying to, like, talk some sense into either the, the cop or the young woman. I'm not really sure which. It's totally unclear. The woman filming is livid and very vocal about what she is seeing and in total disbelief as things get heated. And the young woman refuses to comply. The child sitting behind her gets visibly upset. Probably the saddest thing ever. Probably the saddest shit about this whole thing is that it happened in front of a bunch of kids. And so the guard's asking her to wear a mask. She refuses. We can't hear the exchange. The guard tries to make her leave. She fights him kind of passively, but not. She's just like refusing to let him grab her arms and trying to get away. 
So he manhandles her to cuff her and he's a big dude, right? And she wrestles back, refusing to comply. And then he tases her, upsetting several people in the bleachers. And it's kind of shocking, you know? And so he finally gets her cuffed and walks her out. And there's a lot going on in this video. There's a lot of debate over her arrest and the charges. And the articles I briefly saw said that they couldn't charge her with um, not wearing the mask. So they charged her with trespassing. So although mandated, it's not a crime to not wear one, but a business, organization, or school can enforce restrictions to admittance and refuse someone based on their refusal to comply. So trespassing, okay? So it was also outdoors. People were obviously um, social distancing. That was clear. And there were other people that were not wearing a mask. Um, attendees, kids, even guards. So fundamentally, the place has, you know, full discretion not to serve those who's not wearing a mask. And I'm not here to discuss the effectiveness nor the morality surrounding this debate. I am here to talk about the audacity of this young woman. So is it viewed as bold and daring or rude and irresponsible? We don't know her intention or reasoning. We look at the guard, the cop or whatever. He's doing his job, right? You know, he obviously had to taser, right? Um, plain devil's advocate here. I imagine if you were either the girl or the security guard, what were each of their options? Her, you know, wear a mask or leave. So he probably gave her time to cooperate. And him, you know, maybe had someone else intervene, a supervisor. It looked like he kind of radioed for somebody to come and assist. And somebody did co come, somebody does come up at the end of the video. So, or they could have like let it go and maybe called the police if he's not the real police, that is. Um, considering all the heinous misconduct by police nationally and across the globe and the street violence towards local law enforcement and government, this is a tiny stupid incident that pales in comparison to other stuff. So it's not even a big deal. But I don't think anyone would reasonably blame either person for this unfortunate video situation. Hopefully a lesson was learned, although I'm not so sure which lesson that is. Either way, this week's viral video was as PG as it can get. And let me know what you guys think, because I want to hear what you guys think about this. Um, it's a hot issue, and I just keep wanting to talk about it. So tell me what you think. Okay, so this week's topic is nerdy AF. Okay, we're talking about the ARC gene. So it's basically an ancient virus-like parasite that crawled into the brains of our ancestors way back when and still facilitates important jobs in our brain today. So this is something that totally fascinated me. I'm, I'm fascinated by tiny things that get inside of our body and then actually become an integral part of our system, helping us evolve in a way. So let's talk about the ARC gene. If you go to the National Institutes for Health, on January uh, 16th, 2018, there was a news relief of that the memory gene goes viral. Uh, NIH-funded NIH research reveals a novel method for the transferring of genetic material between neurons. Neurons are our brain cells, okay? So this is a gene that's crucial for learning. The ARC gene uses a strategy used by viruses to carry info from neuron to neuron inside these little vesicles. We'll talk about that. And so two independent groups of scientists, the University of Utah and the University of Massachusetts Medical School, both wrote studies published in Cell. So this is all pretty new, like within the last couple of years. So ARC is, so it plays a vital role in the brain's ability to store new information. It has similarities between ARC proteins and HIV proteins, so they have similarities. Those proteins are very, very synonymous. 
The um, University of Utah introduced it to bacterial cells. ARC made this protein capsid that resembles a mirror of viral capsids in physicality, behavior, and other properties. So basically, ARC, this stored bit of information, can make proteins that are little capsules, as you can see. It's a little um, thing for it to put information and then send it off to other cells. So I guess imagine um, a pod from the Death Star or something. Just It's kind of like that. <laughs> Probably not. So anyways, these protein capsids from ARC gene resemble viral capsids in many, many properties, physicality, behavior, and others. So discovery, this is a huge discovery of a fringe idea. Like scientists would have talked about this before and maybe would have been laughed at to talk about that what these viruses are doing in our body is um, this sophisticated. So the University of Massachusetts PhD professor Vivian Budnick and Travis Thompson, also PhD, set out to look at contents of tiny sacs released by cells called extracellular vesicles. That's what I'm talking about, the little pods. Um, so imagine this little pod leaving the cell, you know, with this little bit of information ready to be snatched up by other cells so it can um, utilize that information inside. Experiments using fruit flies showed motor neurons that control the fly's muscles release these vesicles containing high amounts of ARC gene messenger RNA, which is little mRNA, which is basically DNA-like intermediary molecules that's used to create pro the protein encoded by that sequence. Like I said, it's a bit of information that they can use to create a protein. ARC capsids act like viruses in that they deliver messenger RNA to nearby cells. Several scenarios research showed that, you know, cells without ARC gene will make use of nearby introduced vesicles with this messenger RNA to utilize it to make these proteins. So these fruit flies lacking the ARC gene form fewer connections to their motor neurons. That's also been found. And why is this important? Well, toxic proteins are responsible for Alzheimer's spreading through the brain the way it is. It, and it should shed some light on the mechanism that drives that. So that's why we're studying this so hard. Another article in lifescience.com titled Ancient Virus May Be Responsible for Human Consciousness by Rafi Letzer, February of 2018, he starts it off to go, quote, you've got an ancient virus in your brain. In fact, you've got an ancient virus at the very root of your conscious thought, end quote. That's a, that's a pretty bold statement, which is awesome. Okay, so this refers to two papers published in Cell, 2018, January, same, same deal, because this is big news, right? Um, that a virus bound its genetic code to the genome to four-limbed animals way back when, which is that's what we are. That code is what we're talking about and may be responsible for a higher order of thinking. In fact, it said that between 40 to 80 percent of the human genome may have come from archaic viruses. In fact, viral, gene, viral genes play an important part in the immune system. Well, how about that? So ARC gene is super important for brain function. In fact, without it, synapses will wither away. Problems with ARC gene show up in people with autism and other atypical neural conditions. So even weirder, ARC gene in humans and other four-limbed are similar, but the ARC gene in fruit flies and worms arrived separately, which means it happened twice independent of each other that we know of, you know. This is all, 
you know, this is groundbreaking. Our immune system is complex and so is our biological history. So our thoughts and behaviors and ability to learn being facilitated through prehistoric virus-like proteins, bizarre. So maybe next week we'll talk about Toxoplasma Gandhi since we're we're in with this virus thing inside of our brain. But let's remember, some of these are helpful. Some of these are helping us evolve and and perform complex thinking. So what do you think about that? Okay, I'm starting to get pissed off because nobody's sending me any mail. So this week on Mailbag, I had to resort to some Reddit stuff, which is fine because people write incredible stories there. But I'm starting to get a little butt hurt that nobody's sending me any scary stories. So once again, fringe with benefits at protonmail.com. Send me some shit. I know you guys have stories to tell for days. Like you would if we were sitting around a campfire, but you know, come on, send me your stories about Bigfoot, Dogman, Skinwalkers, all that stuff. So this week, I've got a couple for you. I'm going to start with the uh, um, the scary low vibrational one first. It's from, it's on the Reddit thread Paranormal, the user Cryogenic Toast one and it's titled, If Kids Scare You, Skip This. Now this is from some scary shit, you know, and then both of these encounters are kind of the opposites of each other as far as what's going on and what kind of entity it probably is. You know what I mean? Okay, so it starts. In the end of 2018, my sister, husband, and three kids and two dogs moved into my house on top of my two dogs and wife while extensive repairs were being made on their house after heavy rain caused their house to unsettle that ended up taking over a year. Jeez. The 1980 built two previous owner houses, the house me and my family grew up in. So my sister knew of something else already living there before any of us. The only known deaths are of my grandma in 2006 and my father, September 6, 2020 and 20. Oh, he just lost his dad. Um, Both from cancer, but the lands are haunted and cursed by natives. Out of all experiences, these were the most terrifying. Three weeks after they moved in and we began getting uneasy feelings around the den fireplace room and out of nowhere all the dogs would freak out barking and running in circles, hair on end, teeth shown, defensive posture all at one corner of the room. Keep in mind I have a Doberman and a Golden Lab. My sister has a Labradoodle and an English Mastiff. Big old girl. But then would seem to walk to the back sliding back glass door and exit because the dogs would just start whining and whippering tail between their legs. Almost every time as well, my sister's two-year-old twins run into the room and both stare at it. Two months go by. They start talking to something while they eat during the day around nap time, 12 to 1. They sometimes play with it. So these two-year-old little twins are playing with something. Okay, continues on. Five months go by, it got worse. I began seeing the entity go into their room and then run away. As weeks passes, my sister's eldest son, who is five, starts to talk to someone. And, uh, oh, sorry, I lost it. He starts to talk to someone. We ask Cam, who's, who's he talking to? His friend. While we're all talking, he keeps looking past my right shoulder where I keep feeling cold, but my focus is on him, and I ask what he's looking at. My friend, Fred. Apparently, the entity knew we were calling it Fred since 2002. I asked what he looked like. He replied, kind of scary, but not really. He looks like a basketball player, tall, no hair, and a big black shirt, but I can't see his face. As one would expect, my eyes widen in horror, and all replied was with, oh, Cam replies, he says to just go with the flow. 
No one in my family ever said that. Next day, I had a priest come to bless the house, which pissed it off. The day after that, a loud slap could be heard from downstairs, followed by a loud two-year-old screaming a welted handprint on her back. Then almost every other day, like clockwork, 3 a.m. rolled around. You can hear footsteps, then kids would scream bloody murder, saying, go away, crying for their mom. Their labradoodle dog, Bear, would also whine and bark scared. No marks on the kids, though. Then one night, I had off and really, really wanted to see what was happening. Why were they so afraid, and what caused them to scream? What was walking? I stayed up to 3 a.m. I was downstairs and waiting. 3.37 came around. I feel immense and extreme anxiety as well as just freezing cold. I am nowhere near a vent, and the only fan we have is upstairs. Then a sense of dread. The cold goes away as if my eyes weren't mine, and I just watched the thing go upstairs, stop the hallway, look at me, then walk to their room. I heard the footsteps. I saw the entity, but I couldn't physically see it. It was like a mental image. And of course, the kids burst into tears. I go and puke from pure fear. I go into an anxiety attack and passed out in the bathroom. I didn't have a nightmare, but my sister did have three scratches on her back. And the kids were saying the monster did it. After that, they said fuck it and moved with their husband's brother. And I'm still here chock full of stories. Stay safe and don't piss off random entities. And then below there's a link that says the only photo I have of Fred 2016. There's a link to a picture. And it's pretty scary. It's dark. Looks like there's a silhouette, but you can see the staircase he's talking about. Very scary encounter. And no wonder they moved. So of course, Thread's chock full of you know, people giving their input of probably what it is. We do know that the the marks of three is usually related to a demon and um, definitely a scary situation. Definitely pissed something off. Let me know if you've had any encounters like this. I want to hear all about it. Um, Once again, fringe with benefits at protonmail.com. Send me some emails. I don't care. It could be about you getting into a fight in a parking lot over a parking spot, which I've done, by the way. But I don't care what it is. Just tell me. Okay, so the next one. It's uh, the Reddit thread paranormal user Maui Rain, R-A-Y-N-E. So it says, I saw a shapeshifter, an encounter. So this is bizarre. I am hoping that by posting here, I may connect with someone who has also experienced something similar or who have heard of others who have experienced similar. Here's my story. This experience happened at approximately 1.20 a.m.-ish Thanksgiving morning, 2018. I live in southwest Washington State, and I had rented a vacation home in Lincoln City, Oregon, to accommodate mine and my sister's family who was flying in from Hawaii for Thanksgiving holiday. We all had arrived at the rental around 3 p.m. Around 7.30 p.m., my son started yelling for me, and he said that my one-year-old grandson had gotten into my case with my blood pressure meds, and sure enough, one of my pills was missing. We panicked and called Poison Control, who told us to call 911 ASAP. They sent an ambulance and took my grandson to a small hospital in the area. The staff there did what they could but told us they were not equipped for the situation and my grandson needed to be transported to Randall's Children's Hospital in Portland, Oregon. So on Thanksgiving Eve, a pediatric ambulance was sent from Randall's to Lincoln City, about a two and a half, three hour drive due to holiday traffic. It arrived around midnight to pick up my grandson. My son's wife rode in an ambulance with my grandson back to Randall's. Me and my son went back to the beach house to get diapers and clothes and started the drive to Randall's at around 12.30 a.m. So here is where we encountered something that I and my son will never forget for as long as we live. We had been on the road for about an hour and had just passed the Spirit Mountain Casino on Highway 18 and were in the area that was all hay farmland in between Bellevue and McKinville. 
The road had two lanes only and is definitely a long deserted road, especially at the hour of that at that hour of night. The ride had been very emotional as I felt extremely guilty for having packed my meds in a side pocket of a tote bag where my grandson was able to access it. I was terrified for him and I was crying. My son was also upset and although he was trying to hide it, I knew he blamed me. Anyway, here's the crazy part. As we were driving, I noticed my son slightly drifting in the road. He was falling asleep. Twice I asked him if he was okay and to drive and to be careful. So being that I was very concerned that he may fall asleep, I was very aware and up watching him and the road, making sure he would not fall asleep. As we were driving down the road going about 55, in the distance we both saw what at first we thought was a deer running in our lane of the road, coming straight at us. But within a couple seconds we realized it was not a deer but a golden colored horse. It must have been about 250 feet away at that point. It got closer closer fast as like we were traveling at about 55 mile per hour it got it about 150 feet away it leaped upwards and morphed instantly into a giant owl right before our eyes the wingspan stretched past our lane in the road me and my son estimate that it was 12 to 15 foot wingspan this thing was enormous as soon as we saw my son yelled out wtf <laughs> and he swerved the car to the left to avoid it and just as he did this the owl immediately landed about 50 feet ahead of us to our right in that little area outside the white line like the bike path area the owl kind of tucked its head in into its wings or, or it tucked its head and wings into its chest as if it were scared or trying to hide as we drove past it i got a good look at it out my window and with its head and wings tucked in it still came to about the top the bottom of the window of the subaru it seemed a little wider than the width of a beach ball, so about three and a half feet tall and 20 to 24 inches all the way around the body. This thing was mind-blowingly big. Now, as soon as this happened, it was almost as if a trance came over us. It affected both of us in the same ways. One, we did not speak a word until the rest of the drive until we all got to the hospital. Two, we both lost all feelings of being tired, and it felt like a calm alertness and awareness took over. I never even felt the fear that he would fall asleep after that encounter. Three, the memory of the experience was crystal clear, but the curiosity and wonder or even awe did not hit us until driving back through the same area the next afternoon after my grandson was discharged. It was like we suddenly both said, and what the heck was that thing we saw last night? And it was all started pouring out from both of us, my, the exact same thing that we saw. My son's wife was asking us questions about it, and we were blurting out the same exact answers. It was mind-blowing. Till this day, we talk about it and wonder, what did we witness that night? We both agree that it seemed to be some mythical creature or shapeshifter. We both also agree that whatever it was, it was good and it meant us no harm. It may have been a guardian. Or maybe it was something that we witnessed by accident and maybe weren't meant to see. Either way, just the fact that we both saw it. I feel extremely lucky and blessed to have seen proof with my own eyes that animal spirits or shapeshifters or magical creatures do exist. Makes me wonder about stories of fairies and mermaids and Pegasus and Nessie may just be true. If you got to the end, thank you. I'm not very good at writing. Has anyone experienced similar? She did a great job. It was really good. Um, and of course, there's a ton on that thread of things that people have seen or what they theorize that she may have seen. And of course, you know, there's some trolls in there too that want to, you know, totally disregard or discredit her. But that's an incredible sighting. And it, it was almost as if this thing actually helped them get there safely it's it's pretty interesting i want to know what you think have you seen a shapeshifter so send me some mail so i have some real mail in my real mail bag and we'll talk about some stuff you know send me some stuff or even send me some questions if you want me to answer some questions 
for the mailbag if you have any questions about Naked and Afraid. I know you all do because everybody does. Or what's going on or, you know, any current event topics. Maybe the debate. Maybe I'll talk about the debate because that was pretty funny. Uh, Let me know. Uh, Fringewithbenefits at protonmail.com. So this week's guest spot is a person that's very near and dear to my heart. I don't really know him, but <laughs> I really do like him. And he has probably one of the the most controversial followings. And um, he's one of the people that have been completely displatformed or deplatformed on YouTube. And a lot of his stuff has, of course, been taken off. I do believe he may still have a Twitter account, um, but it's Brian Rose from London Real recently has been interviewing him, and the the cens- censorship issue has been a very, very real thing for Brian Rose, as well as this person that I'd like to talk about, which is David Icke. A lot of people make fun of him. He's um, He's pretty out there, but I really, really appreciate him. I'm going to read you a quick little synopsis about kind of what he's about. I did go to Wikipedia, and although a lot of this stuff is extremely negative, which I totally expected, there is some stuff in here that I did like and I would like to share. So let's talk about, we're going to leave the bad stuff. If you want to go look up David Icke on Wikipedia and see what they said, feel free, but I'm I'm not going to give it um, my energy and time here. I'm going to basically share what it says about what he believes. So, Ike believes that the universe is made up with vibrational energy and consists of an infinite number of dimensions that share the same space. He claims that an interdimensional race of reptilian beings called the Archons or Anunnaki have hijacked the Earth and that a genetically modified human-Archon hybrid race of shape-shifting reptilians known as Babylonian Brotherhood, the Illuminati, or the elite manipulate global events to keep humans in constant fear. The Archons feed off of negative energy this creates, right? He also claims that many prominent public figures along to the Babylonian Brotherhood and are propelling humanity towards an Orwellian global fascist state or new world order, a post-truth era where freedom of speech is ended. Ike believes that the only way this archonic influence can be defeated is as is if people wake up to the truth and fill their hearts with love or fill their hearts with love. So that's the reason why I really like this man. He has an incredible message. He's tries to encourage and lift people up and guide them in a way that is like productive as an individual, kind of like how I'm doing. And I watching him be ridiculed and be talked poorly of it's disheartening, but at the same time, you know, it's it's expected. Um, I'm going to remain indifferent to what his beliefs are because, but I'm I'm I stay indifferent on this because we don't know. So, I would like to celebrate David Icke today on this show. And if you haven't heard of him, go look him up. He's written tons of books. You could find him pretty much everywhere, but. A lot of people don't like to keep his content on their platforms because it doesn't share, he doesn't share the same narrative as everybody else does. So we love you, David. Um, I hope you're doing well today. And uh, 
I'm wondering if you watched the presidential debate last night and what you think of it. I'm hoping to hear something from you. Okay. That's our guest spot this week. Maybe someday we will actually have a real guest, but I haven't figured out how to make that happen yet. This week's Inward Survival School of Magic, I'm going to talk about something completely practical, um, very unlike what we normally talk about. We're going to talk a little bit about disaster preparedness. We've got this election coming up. Things are crazy, and I'm not real sure. I'm not real sure about the future of our country, and uh, so we're just going to have to see about this. But disaster preparedness is super important. So I suggest that you go look up. Um, I mean, there's so many resources out there. Ready.gov has a really great step-by-step uh, process in which you you know you put the plan together. Uh, discussing what certain things that your family may need. I mean, it has to be tailored for your family. Like what, um, how will you receive emergency alert and warnings? What's your shelter plan? What's your evacuation route? What's your communication plan with your family? And do you have an emergency preparedness kit? Uh, You have to also, you know, tailor it to your family. Consider specific needs. Does any, is anybody on any kind of medication that they need to live? you have any dietary needs that are extremely important, Um, any disabilities or issues, Uh, pets. I mean, that's something we really, really have to think about is if there was a real natural disaster or a super emergency, like, is it reasonable? Would we be able to bring our pets with us? You know, how are you going to get out? There is so many PDFs on ready.gov as far as like getting together and, um, logistically planning an emergency plan for your family or for your kids or just, um, you know, first aid issues, like what what your plan is and how you're going to communicate to everybody, like your meeting spot, everything. And you really have to specifically tailor it to um, your area, your geographics and the demographics. Are you in the city? Are you out in the country? Do you have a four-wheel drive vehicle? Are you going to have to go on foot? And if so, you know, how do you prepare for actually having to go on foot? So I did a little bit of research for you guys because there's so much out there. Like literally there's a plethora of types of information that you can get. And one of the articles that I found fascinating, I will link it in the show notes like I do with all of them, is this urbansurvivalsite.com. This article is 17 survival items you don't need in your bug out bag. So if you don't know what a bug out bag is, then you need to learn. Um, So basically it's a backpack full of the things that you will grab in case of an emergency. It's got everything that you need in case you needed to um, beat feet and hit the ground running and just take what you got. Um, So he talks about the things that you don't need to put in there and what you do need. Of course, there's lots of articles about what to put in your bit bug out bag, but that's something that we have to decide as an individual. He brings up some very, very important points in this article, and it's he says that every bug out bag should be 100% unique, which I totally agree with. But the basic items that every bag should have is um, a couple snacks, some food, a lighter or a fire starter, a water filter or water purification methods, and a flashlight. But you need to customize it based on where you live and what kind of disasters most likely to occur in your area and how much weight that you can cover. Um, You know, they say not to pack your bag any heavier than uh, 10, 15, 
20% of your body weight. They say that the uh, maximum is 20%, which is, which is pretty heavy for the average person. So real quick, since we're being completely practical and I really want you to have some useful information, I, you know, I'm going to give you a homework assignment. So do you have a bug out bag and what's in it? Maybe shoot me some mail and tell me what you like to keep in your bug out or what makes your bug out bag unique. To stay with this article, 17 items you don't need in your bug out bag. One, sleeping bags. You don't need a sleeping bag. Just some emergency blanket. It's really tiny, really light. Don't need to pack a sleeping bag. Tents. You do not need a tent. You do need knowledge on how to build a shelter, though. That's important. Camping tripods. Why would you need that? You don't need that. You can make that using sticks out in the field. Camping lantern. Yeah, no. I, like, I can't even believe people, some of these people would even put this in their bug out bag. A flare gun. Well, he says, unless you think you're going to end up on a deserted island, there's no reason to, you need a flare gun. That's a, you know, maybe, maybe pack a signaling mirror instead. Bottled water. That's another thing you don't really necessarily need, just as long as you have a water filter or you know how to find and purify water. There's all kinds of things that you can pack in your bag that can help you clean your water and not have to carry bottled water because you need a lot of water to survive and it's just not uh, practical to carry that much water on you. Canned food, it's heavy. It's too heavy for the amount of calories you get. Although it's good to maybe pack in your vehicle and to just have, you're better off getting freeze-dried food or rehydrating um, your freeze-dried food. Cast iron skillets do not do not pack a cast iron skillet. They're too heavy. Take it from me, naked and afraid. We had to carry that thing for miles. Way too heavy. With our <laughs> with our coals, by the way, because you got to keep your coals going, especially if you had to use a primitive method to start your fire. Plateware and utensils, you do not need it. I mean, worst case scenario, you eat with your hands. Toiletries, I mean, this whole toilet paper scenario, give me a break. You could wipe your ass with pretty much anything out there. A rock, shit. You do what you got to do. It's not absolutely necessary. It's probably good to pack a toothbrush because that would be one thing you wouldn't want to go without. That's really light. Throw that in your bag. I don't, my bug out bag does not have a toothbrush because I know I can get along without one if I need to. Medication. You don't need to pack a whole bottle, just uh, maybe some little tiny um, baggy size with just a few because the whole bug out purpose is just supposed to get you by temporarily. Survival books. Of course, books weigh a lot, but there are some really, really great lightweight um, survival books that you can put in your bag or it's really kind of popular to um, write out your own journal. You know, take some notes on some books that you think would be able, you know, utilized in the field, you write it in a, a journal, and then you keep that in your bug out bag. That means, you know, you take the most important parts and aspects from the books that you read and keep at home. Otherwise, there is an awesome pocket size edition of the SAS Survival Guide, and it's only seven ounces, it says. And it does, it's crammed with great information. Games, you do not need games. If you're out there trying to survive, you're not going to need them. Heavy tools, well, if people are going to want to bring their heavy tools, I, you know, you don't need things like that. Maybe a, a can opener or, um, was it P38? Is that what those are called? Uh, screwdrivers. But you know what? A multi-tool is going to cover that. And of course, a pocket knife, you're going to want some kind of blade with you. Any kind of backup gear, you, you're really not going to want to pack it. You're really only going to pack the bare essentials. Everything else you're going to find out in the field. 
um, extra clothes, maybe some some lightweight layers that you can pack in your bag just so you have them. Absolutely, that's a, a good idea. Extra ammo, yeah, it, extra ammo is always a good idea, but it's really heavy, so you really have to be careful as to how much you pack or how much you're going to need. And so basically you, you can look for, you know, lighter versions of items. So you're something that you can't live without. Try to find the most light version of it. Uh, bring multi-purpose items, dental floss, bandanas, paper clips, uh, multi-tools, of course. You want to uh, lighten your stuff. So if there is a piece of um, something that you don't really need, cut it off and lighten the load because you really only need certain pieces. Like for example, it says here, cut down the handle on your toothbrush, drill holes in non-vital parts of equipment, or cut off unnecessary straps and pieces of cloth on things. There's a lot you can do if you're creative. I totally agree with this. And then the most important thing is get in shape. This is one of the best things you can do, he says. Every day, put on your bug out bag and go for a walk. Your muscles will eventually adapt and it won't seem very heavy anymore. We have to practice physical conditioning. It's one of the most important aspects in a survival situation is how fast we can run, how well we can maintain uh, composure in a stressful situation and, and the things of that like. A lot of our... Uh, preparedness goes into the knowledge we acquire when we're studying set, such things and as well as visualizing what if scenarios and how you would react and try to plan out what the best route would be to take. Just playing in your mind, you know, um, role playing as to like certain scenarios and how you and your family would react to, for the, the best outcome, most best possible case scenario is what we're looking for. So I hope everybody's doing good out there. It's getting, you know, it's down to the wire with um, election year. It's going to get crazier from here. And I know a lot of people are thinking, especially with this coronavirus thing, like we need to be prepared for the worst. We need to stock up in case the stores close again. Absolutely. The more you can do now, the better off you'll be later on. And that's not only in the physical aspect of accumulating things, but it's also in the mental aspect of accumulating knowledge, as well as in the physical aspect in accumulating physical conditioning so you can make it out, so you can, you know, help your family, so you can, so you can be useful. So good luck to everybody else. That's my school of magic for today is get your shit together, get your bug out bag packed and just be ready. But have a good attitude and have an optimistic outlook because that's absolutely important important too and this week we're going to wrap up our episode our episode number 10 what with our stoic thought from letters from a stoic lucius aeneas seneca he said a lot of really great things about being prepared for the future so we're going to talk a little bit about that and get you sent off just right. So he says, what is quite unlooked for is more crushing in its effect and the unexpectedness adds to the weight of a disaster. The fact that it was unforeseen has never failed to intensify as a person's grief. This is a reason for ensuring that nothing ever takes us by surprise. We should project our thoughts ahead of us at every turn and have in mind every possible eventuality instead of only the usual course of events. That is something that I really need to think about and learn 
in life for myself is that, you know, look at, even though, you know, I want to be positive all the time, it could be sometimes to a fault and that I need to look at all potential outcomes, even if they're bad, because the, the more likely I am to actually like look at that atrocious thing that could possibly happen, the more likely I would be kind of like desensitized to it, at least somewhat, because I had already considered it and I was somewhat expected, expecting it. So let's do another one. A commander never puts such trust in peace that he fails to prepare for a war. Very good. Here's another. Everyone faces up more bravely to a thing for which he has long prepared himself. Sufferings, even within... I'm sorry, sufferings even, being withstood if they had been trained for in advance. Those who are unprepared, on the other hand, are panic-stricken by the most insignificant happenings. End quote. So if you want to read more of that, I suggest to go to visit the Pocket Stoic and um, read How to Be Prepared for Anything, Nine Powerful Seneca Quotes, because they're good. And it goes right with our theme of preparedness and being ready for anything, really. So I hope everybody has a really great week. I will try to get back on the regular schedule of posting my episodes on Sundays, but I don't know, this could be a forever change. We're just going to have to see how that goes. Thank you for joining me. Make sure you send me some mail and party on. Mm -hmm.